0: Well, Good morning, Um, it's been said a few times, but my name is Lane, Um, I'm part of the preaching team here at College Drive, I'm a preacher in training, I feel like I need a big neon sign pointing down saying training, or a giant name tag, Um, you've probably seen me up here before, I usually play drums or guitar, Um, but today you get to hear me talk. Um, So today, uh, as we said, we're we're going through, uh, well we're ending, our series titled, Once Upon a Savior, The Doubter. I feel like we need the law and order. Like, dun, dun, like Have you ever had a doubt in your life? For example, have you ever left your house, gotten to your car, driven about a block away, and then thought, did I lock the door? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I did. Maybe I didn't. I don't know now. <laughs> so you turn around and you go back just to double check only to confirm that, yes, you did in fact lock the door. All the ADHD people get up and, just, just, oh. crap, I don't know if I did. Um, <laughs> uh, here's, here's a good one. Have you ever had someone do something to, um, to cause you doubt about, uh, maybe about how cool you are? Well, I have. Uh, one day while driving to my evening shift, I stopped at a red light. You should probably do that. Stop by red lights. Um, while waiting for it to turn green, a father with his two daughters, uh, he was crossing the street, holding hands uh, from each of them. And as they were crossing, the daughter who was closer to me made eye contact with me. I'm sitting there in my truck. As she did this, she puts out her hand, like this. <laughs> she pointed at me, and as she's doing this motion, she proceeds to do this. And it just keeps walking. <laughs> yeah, I didn't feel so cool after that. <laughs> <laughs> lot of doubt, lot of doubt. Have you ever watched a thrilling mystery movie where you, uh, you start to form theories about uh, who the thief or the murderer is? Um, but then there comes a point in the movie where they throw a twist at you uh, and you ended up being wrong about your theory. Or... Maybe you've had your trust broken by someone who thought, who you, whom you thought was a friend or a mentor. Someone who you looked up to, but they did or said something to really betray that trust. These are just some examples of different kinds of doubt. Sometimes our doubts may be small and inconsequential, like during a thrilling movie. But doubt can be bigger than that. And as Christians, it can perhaps be the biggest challenge we face. Today our focus comes from John chapter 20, verse 24 to 29. This section is titled Jesus and Thomas, or most notably known as the story of Doubting Thomas. It is a passage that comes up somewhat frequently in the apologetic world, but skeptics look at Thomas as being the level-headed one for asking for evidence of Jesus' resurrection. As opposed to the often thought idea that the New Testament, and more specifically Jesus, wants us to operate via faith and not evidence. Now, I have preached on this in a previous sermon about faith, but today we are going to focus our attention more fully on doubt. The topic of doubt and faith is close to my heart because it has been part of my Christian walk. Today, I seek to hopefully disentangle some misconceptions about what it means to doubt. So here's what our passage says. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. On the surface, it seems like he is saying, blessed are those who believe without evidence. That is not what the gospel writer has in view. It is true that Thomas, in this account, is being given the evidence that he desires. But we need to remember that Thomas is not the only one who doubted Jesus. There are other examples of doubting disciples as well. So for example, in Mark chapter 16, verse 9 to 13, we read, in Luke's account in chapter 24, verse nine to 12, we also read, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told them these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. So it's not as if there was something particularly special about Thomas because he clearly wasn't the only one to have doubts about the reports of Jesus' resurrection. Thomas is on the other side of the resurrection. It has happened already, but the word of it is only now beginning to spread. We as modern readers need to recognize that we are on the other side of the other side. That is, Thomas has an advantage that we don't. He had Jesus in front of him, whereas today we don't have Jesus just walking around physically to stand in front of us and talk with us. We also don't have eyewitnesses among us to ask them questions. What we have are what has been written down via the Gospels, which were written so that you may know that these things happened. There are two scenes here in this passage. The first involves the disciples and Thomas first without Jesus, and then part two is with Jesus. For whatever reason, Thomas wasn't with them when Jesus first appeared. Perhaps this was intentional on Jesus' part, but, I want, but what I want you to notice is that in the first instance, Thomas is in a position where he just has the eyewitness testimony from the other disciples. But he clearly states that this is not enough. He wants solid physical evidence that Jesus has in fact risen from the dead. And in part two, we see Jesus appearing to Thomas and providing the physical evidence for his resurrection that Thomas needed. In an article titled Faith and Narrative, the author states that there are two levels of belief present in the gospel. One is at the story level, which is the action that takes place within the story, and one is at the discourse level, which is the communication between the author and the audience, At the story level, we see the characters in the gospel who display what is called acceptable belief in Jesus. That is, they show a level of trust in Jesus, though this understanding is not complete until after the crucifixion. This is where we arrive at the discourse level to see what the writer is intending to convey. The gospel of John begins with a prologue that proclaims a full understanding of who Jesus is. We then see the disciples as they struggle to grasp the fullness of Jesus and his ministry. We are then brought back to this level of understanding here with Thomas. A footnote in the same paper further clarifies the point. While the significance for the audience of the gospel includes endorsing faith through testimony rather than sight, the central importance of chapter 20, verses 25 to 29, is that Thomas confesses Jesus as divine. The reader has known Jesus is God from the beginning of the narrative, and now at last a character within the narrative arrives at this belief. How Thomas arrives at such faith is secondary, and verse 29 does not need to be understood as a criticism of his faith, for he has believed what John intends his readers to believe. The significance of the gospel, then, is that it is meant to give you, the reader, the means to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. We see that faith is a journey. It takes time, and everyone has a unique experience with it. The point also is not so much that Thomas doubted, but that he did come to believe in Jesus. When Jesus says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus is telling Thomas that he has it easier than those who don't have Jesus standing right in front of them. Now, I believe that we have also been given evidence to believe as well. Just not exactly what Thomas has been given. And how we go about looking at that evidence is going to look somewhat different than that of the disciples. We must look at historical, philosophical, and forensic methods for the resurrection. I can also personally attest that, at times, it can be difficult to believe that Christianity is true especially when things don't seem to line up. For instance, it can be hard to conceive of the goodness of God considering circumstances in which at least from our point of view, God could have intervened to prevent evil from happening. Every couple of months now we keep hearing about yet another school shooting. Why did this have to happen? Why did God let it happen? Or why did people or why why do people commit atrocities in the name of Christ. And when I say atrocities, I mean evil acts, torture, murder, rape, the list goes on. Seeing these actions of people who profess to be followers of Christ can and has turned people away from the gospel to which they say, I want nothing to do with your Jesus if this is how his followers act. This can leave people with broken trust in the church, Christianity, and Jesus himself. Thomas experienced the death of Jesus and seemingly the failure of who he thought was the Messiah. It likely left him with a broken sense of trust and perhaps some feelings of being duped. He had given up his life to follow the one he thought would redeem Israel and liberate them from the beast that is the pagan Roman Empire. But... Then this all comes crashing down, furiously, as this man whom he had put his trust and faith in was being crucified in the most humiliating and painful way possible in that time and place. I think we as moderns, for the most part, fail to grasp the severity of what it looked like to have your supposed Messiah be dispatched in the manner that he was. For Jesus to be crucified along with those thieves put him at the lowest of lows. It was utterly humiliating to him and his followers. All those dreams of God liberating Israel from exile came crashing down in an instant. From the disciples' perspective then, at the point of the crucifixion, Jesus had failed. And And to the disciples, that was the end of it. But as we know from the writer's point of view, that is not the outcome, and the crucifixion wasn't the end. Jesus' resurrection, and more specifically, his appearances, were the evidence that they needed to believe. So we can see that the evidence has been part of the story from the beginning. He has not expected people to just believe out of the blue, but he has demonstrated signs, miracles, and wonders time and time again, all throughout the Gospels as a reason to believe in him. However, this passage tends to get used as an example of Jesus praising those who simply believe without having any evidence. But this only really works if we ignore the events that led up to this moment for Thomas. First, he heard the teaching of Jesus. Second, he witnessed the signs and wonders that he did. And three, he heard Jesus' prophecy that he would die and rise again. Thomas heard about the resurrection through very much the same means that most others in history have, through being told by others. He heard and did not believe the testimony of others, and if he had not seen Jesus, it's possible he may have never believed. The New Testament is saying to us right now that those who wrote it have seen Jesus resurrected. Thomas' response was disbelief, Even after all he had seen, he was given just one more piece of evidence, and then he believed. Jesus isn't admonishing belief without evidence. He admonished those who trust in the evidence that has been displayed already. Because what if even after Thomas had touched Jesus' wounds, and he still said, I'm just not convinced. Maybe Jesus had a twin brother that his parents hid from birth, And now that he is dead, his twin brother is impersonating him as part of some grand conspiracy to gain power and control over others. That's an actual, that's actually been put forth, by the way. Um, Nobody takes it seriously, but. um, Maybe it's the case that Thomas, years later, would look back on the instance and change his mind about what happened. Citing it as a group hallucination event due to their immense grief and dissonance from Jesus' crucifixion. Some have gone so far as to say that even if they were in fact standing before God Himself, they would still not bend their knee to Him or believe in Him because He has too much to answer for. It's clear then that for some, no amount of evidence will do. Jesus is essentially saying to Thomas, How much more do you need? However, the gospel shows that Thomas does come to believe, but it is after he has been given lots of signs, wonders, and evidence. Here is another example to further clarify the point. In an episode of the Reluctant Theologian podcast, philosopher Ryan Mullins and theologian Dr. Stephen Nemesh are having a conversation about whether the bread and the wine of the Eucharist become the actual blood and flesh of Christ. During this talk, Dr. Namesh references John chapter 6, which contains what is called the bread of life discourse. He remarks that the people in that region saw Jesus perform these miraculous signs, such as multiplying the fish and the bread. They then go in search of him for more signs and want to make him king. When they finally catch up to him, Jesus begins his discourse on how if they want to obtain eternal life, they must do the work of the Father. Those who had been trying to find Jesus ask, how can can this be done? To which Jesus responds, that they must believe in the one whom the Father has sent. Dr. Namesh then remarks that they go on to ask such an audacious and inappropriate question. What sign do you do then that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Jesus simply responds that they must eat his body and drink his blood, to which many of them turn away. To eat the bread and drink the wine is a sign of belief. But Jesus says it in a way to test whether these people will follow through, especially after they had already witnessed his miracles. So we can see here a very similar course of events where the disciples have been given signs and wonders, but they end up chasing the wrong thing. When it comes down to really following what Jesus asks of them, they find it repugnant. This means that to show these people, this, sorry, this is meant to show that these people chose not to believe even after they had seen these miracles. But Thomas is meant to serve as an example of someone deciding to believe based on what has been given. This event then isn't just given as an afterthought, but it is the culmination of everything being talked about in the gospel. He has been given the evidence and then is given the opportunity to make a choice based on that evidence. So what does this mean for us? There is a common misconception that if you doubt in any capacity, then somehow you aren't being a faithful Christian, and your salvation is potentially not secure. A common accusation lobbed at those who lose faith is that they really know the truth, but they are just choosing not to believe just so that they can sin. While that may be the case in a few instances, here's something to think about. Have we considered it may also be due to the hypocrisy of Christians? Our failure to show love towards doubters or to provide credible answers to their tough questions. I'm not saying that it has to be only one or the other, but in many cases, a major source of doubt for people is the hypocritical behavior of other Christians. We need to take a more nuanced approach to doubt, especially because the world isn't so much asking the question, is Christianity, is Christianity true these days? As they are questioning whether it is good for the world. Now, I have a love for nerdy, high-level philosophical apologetics. I love looking at arguments for God and Christianity. But something I have realized in my journey is that the apologetic people need most is love through the actions of Christians. We are so used to talking about the love that Jesus has for others, but do we ever talk about the church having that same love for others? Let us then, as the body of Christ, be a resource for people who are struggling with either side of doubt. That is, people who are Christians but having serious doubts about Christianity and what it means to be a Christian. As well as those who have not made a decision to follow Jesus yet, but have a desire to know if Christianity is true through evidence, but lack sufficient reason to make that decision. We are to bring the love of Christ to the world doubters included, we need to operate from the foundation of the two greatest commandments. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. If we aren't living that, then we shouldn't be surprised that people leave the faith. Maybe it's not the secular universities that are the sole reason young people lose their faith, but maybe it is the church at large that has lost sight of its God-given mandate. The church is the body of Christ, and just as Jesus provided signs of the love of God to the people he encountered, the church also needs to be equipped to give people a reason to believe. Thomas had intellectual and emotional doubts, which Jesus responded to. We, likewise, should also be ready to offer answers and resources. If people aren't given good, credible reasons to believe and choose to walk away, then that is in part due to the failure of the church to provide for that person. If doubt is something that you struggle with, then welcome to the club. You aren't the first, and you certainly won't be the last. The problem that many make is to equate doubt with disbelief. Let's look at one more notable instance of doubt in the Bible. And that is John the Baptist. When John was in prison, he expressed doubt about whom Jesus said he was. He asked one of his disciples to go to Jesus and ask, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? He started to lose faith in who Jesus was. But this was Jesus' response. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus points John back to the works that he has done, and he has also heard of and witnessed. Here is the interesting part, though. If we continue in the passage, we see that Jesus then says of John, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. If Jesus considered a man who doubted him to be the greatest man ever born, how much more can Jesus look upon us with grace and love in our doubt? What then is our response to those who doubt? The common response that I've heard is that you just need to have more faith. The problem with this approach is that it is not how Jesus dealt with doubt. Jesus first taught and demonstrated why people should believe in him. If he didn't have this component, then many more people may not have believed in him. If all we do is tell people to have more faith, but give them no foundation for why they should trust him, then we are doing a disservice to our brothers and sisters who wrestle with doubt. And those who are outside faith seeking to know if this is true. Are we prepared to come alongside them as they wrestle with their doubts? I want to challenge the long standing idea that if you doubt even a little bit, then you are being unfaithful to God and potentially not saved. In Mark, Chapter nine, verse twenty-four. We read about the father of a child, of a possessed, uh, possessed by an evil spirit, who says to Jesus, "I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief." Jesus didn't tell him to have more faith and then walk away. He immediately casts out the demon from the man's son. Jesus didn't walk away from doubters. He met them in their doubt, and as followers of Jesus, we likewise should not just walk away from those who go through seasons of doubt. The big picture is that the story of God's people is, in fact, a story of doubt. It isn't just limited to Thomas, but to humanity. The point of the story is not to tell you that you shouldn't doubt, or that it is wrong to do so, but that God is the source and sustainer of all, and is faithful to us even when we do doubt. Repeatedly, we see people fail to grasp who God is. Our God is not a God who says to us, Come to me when you have it figured out, or I help those who help themselves. Instead, God knows you cannot live up to Him. So He came not only to die, but to live for you. Because you see, the root of our faith is not ultimately the crucifixion, though that is necessary. No, the core of our faith is resurrection. The whole point is that we are not people who worship a dead, crucified criminal, but we are people whose anthem is resurrection and life, embodied in one man, Jesus. One final word before I conclude. Um, I compiled a list of resources for you to get started if you're someone who, who maybe needs more on the evidential side for the Christian faith. Uh, I've listed some books that you can purchase, as well as some free resources such as websites, YouTube channels, and podcasts. I've also studied this kind of material for a long time, and you can feel free to come to me and ask questions. If I don't have an answer ready for you, you, I'll do my best to try and find one. Um, And you can find those at the welcome desk at the back there. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and get settled as I conclude here. So, doubt is a part of the human experience. The story of the Bible is not primarily about these high and mighty humans who are examples for us to follow. But it is about the God of the universe meeting people where they are at. Jesus is the ultimate example of faith in God. And he admonishes those who place their faith, a trusting loyalty in Yahweh, over those who thought that simply by observing rituals, or that they had all the answers and had it all together, were somehow right with God. Father, we thank you for, we thank you that you are faithful to us even when we have questions and doubts. I want to pray for anyone here today who may be going through a season of doubt that you would give them comfort and clarity in their situation. Sometimes an answer is not readily available, but I also ask that others would come alongside these people and walk through this time with them. Amen.